This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I feel like all those just preconceived notions of bird watching that, you know, you have to be quiet and wear like camouflage clothing right. and <laughs> have to, you know, walk slowly, like no, the the birds don't care about all of those things. <laughs> Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Karen Hahn. Karen, it's so nice to see you again. Yeah. But I have to ask, whose voice was that we heard at the top of the show? So that voice belongs to Isaiah Scott, who is an ornithologist and birder. Interesting. So why did you want to speak with Isaiah? Well, I first became aware of his work through his Instagram, Ike's Birding Hikes. And I just <laughs> loved how enthusiastic he was about birding. And the more that I learned about him, the more that I learned about his efforts to make birdwatching, which I think is stereotypically seen as a pretty staid kind of hobby, mm -hmm. seem more accessible and fun. I love the idea of using social media to get people interested in birds and birding. Mm -hmm. And obviously only a very small number of people will actually be able to join Isaiah on one of his birding hikes. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like his Instagram feed is getting a lot of people all over the country to head out into the woods. What does he do to make birding attractive to more people? I think part of it is just by virtue of who he is. He's relatively uh -huh. young as he's currently a student at Cornell, and he's also Whoa. not white, which I think mm -hmm. is pretty important. And he also makes it very clear that birding isn't about seeing who has the best equipment or who sees the most birds on a hike. It's about having fun and also about community just as much as it is about the birds. Like, it's not a game that you're trying to win. Yeah. That's so cool. And I believe you asked him a question that is intended exclusively for Slate Plus members. Mm -hmm. What will they hear? So for Slate Plus, I talked to him about the field guide that he's working on and how it has changed from what he initially envisioned as he's been researching and working on it. Wow, that sounds super interesting. If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll get to hear that at the end of the show. And if, for some unfathomable reason, you are not yet a member of Slate Plus, why don't you sign up today? You'll get extra segments on shows like Culture Gabfest and The Waves. A few shows like One Year and Big Mood, Little Mood even produce entire episodes just for Slate Plus members. And you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate side. Of course, you'll also be supporting our work and Slate's work. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, now let's listen to Karen's conversation with Isaiah Scott. Hello, Isaiah. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to chat with you. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for having me on the show, and I'm very excited to speak to you as well. <laughs> <laughs> so I first became aware of you and your work through your Instagram, Ike's Birding Hikes. Can you explain what a birding hike is? Yeah, so a birdwatching hike is basically the act of going out 
into a outdoor space or a place in nature and observing, kind of exploring and learning about uh, birds and of the natural habitat. And a hike can be anywhere, <laughs> cities, parks, or even out in the mountains or in a swamp. So just where the birds are and the whole goal is just to have this kind of community-oriented way of connecting with nature and mm-hmm. just learning about the amazing animals, specifically birds, that we share the same space with in the outdoors. Mm-hmm. And so you lead birdwatching hikes yourself. How do you prepare to lead a hike? What, what are the key differences between leading something like this and participating in one? To prepare for leading a hike, um, some things that I do for hikes, burning hikes, mm-hmm. I usually go out into the areas and just get a feel what bird species people are able to expect. So I'll be able to mm-hmm. point out birds and identify them and just learning about where you're going, I guess the the place you're hiking at, maybe like the natural history or like the cultural history or just like the physical walking areas, like where, where are some good places and trails mm-hmm. and just kind of prepare to have fun and have a successful birdwatching hike. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's kind of one of the funnier aspects about a birdwatching hike, where when you're by yourself, you don't really need to worry about like anyone else with you. But when you are someone who's leading a hike like this, it's not just bird watching. You're, like, you're people watching to an extent where you have to kind of like gauge the mood of like how the group is doing. I don't know. Was there any sort of like learning curve as you were starting to lead these hikes? It's like, oh, like this is how best to sort of deal with groups. Like, what do I do if someone's not having a good time and stuff like that? Yeah, no, when I, like, initially when I started just working with people and just leading hikes, Mm -hmm. I was just very shy, and I was, (laughs) um, you know, it was really just kind of definitely something that I had to um, get used to, and it can be, like, a challenge just making sure, like, to engage and speak with everyone and just Mm -hmm. make sure everyone is really just getting the best experience out of the bird watching hike and so I always just try to make sure I don't know randomly like if there's not a bird maybe speak to someone it's like hey or um, just kind of be more engaged with the crowd and also like whenever I see a bird I always spot it out but I also encourage other people to be like hey if you see something cool or bird yeah yeah be sure you know spot it out say hey there's a there's a pileated woodpecker over there or, <laughs> or not even if it's a bird if it's like oh some cool flowers and that's really just pointing out things cool things in nature animals plants or like different or rock features or whatever can appeal to like everyone's interest yeah And speaking of, I guess, sort of crowds and community, I also want to talk about your Instagram presence a little more because I've read in other interviews with you that the online birding community was really important for you to find, especially starting out and feeling like you were kind of alone and unrepresented. I'm curious if you recall like what maybe profiles or sites you were looking at and what the experience was of growing your own online community and following. Really just growing up in getting into bird watching initially I didn't really see myself like other people that look like me or any other like older uh, black men or women or just people 
bird watching. So I yeah. really kind of came in and was I kind of recognized there was this issue where it was a predominantly white space. And so I kind of sought to be a representation for other people in the field. But through social media, that was just a really good way to just connect with other bird watchers and people in the in the nation and just around the world. And uh, this event called Black Birders Week, which launched in 2020, oh, wow. uh, which yeah. is three years ago, yeah, yeah. it was um, basically it's a week-long event that was in light of a situation that happened in Central Park with um, mm-hmm. Christian Cooper, who was a, yeah. a black bird watcher, was racially profiled. And so this event was really just a week-long celebration and recognition of black people in the field of bird watching and in nature and in outdoor spaces who have a love and passion for birds and to the whole goal of just sharing bird watching with other people. And so I was able through Black Birders Week just be able to connect and have this sense of community and to be yeah. a part of a, a, a black bird watching community and that's what we kinda call yeah. ourselves and we all <laughs> we all DM each other and like follow each other like and <laughs> just speak do collaborations. Yeah. And I, I really admire like the stuff that you said about wanting to make sure that no one feels the kind of discouragement that you were feeling when you came into the birdwatching space, that you don't want it to be something that's kind of gatekept in a way. Um, can you speak a little bit to like kind of the old rules of birding? Like you've said, they include, quote, like wearing drab clothing, being quiet, that you don't that you need all of this gear in, in order to be able to participate or have to have this very scientific mindset. Can all of these rules go out the window, do you think? Yes, definitely. Like when I <laughs> first started, you know, I already, already kind of knew like the assumptions with that bird watchers are usually older white people that bird watch something that's done as like a retirement activity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, when I started bird watching, I really just wanted to change the face and change what a birder looked like. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, me being a young black boy that likes to wear just very colorful, just, you know, <laughs> drippy clothing, you know, I guess that's, you know, that's the term we use. Um, and just like to express themselves outdoors, have to sometimes be loud, you know, just say funny jokes, some just laugh. And I feel like all those just preconceived notions of bird watching that you know you have to be quiet and wear like camouflage clothing right and <laughs> have to you know walk slowly like no no the the birds don't care about all of those things <laughs> and <laughs> and um also have the saying like time back to the clothing like you want to look good for the birds like you want to wear like a nice <laughs> outfit you know some colorful clothes yeah, I, I guess this is sort of a tangent, but speaking of fashion, you, you have very great fashion sense. I mean, you've also uh, collaborated with L.L. Bean, a very, I, I guess, famous label at this point. How have you, what led you to want to collaborate with them? And also, like, as these offers have come to you, like, what distinguishes something you want to do versus something that you would rather pass on? Yeah, so with L.L. Bean, I believe it was 
I think it was also in 2021 mm-hmm. that I received a DM from L.L. Bean. And so <laughs> I was like, I was like, what? This this clothing brand company just like just messing me on Instagram. And and so I, um, yeah, they offered to do a um, collaboration, mm-hmm. um, a paid partnership for I think it was like a fall and winter collection that they were doing. And so I was very interested that that was just be great for birding, also make you look good while you're <laughs> outside bird watching, you know, have a little little birding fashion, birding drip. And so <laughs> just by like continuing with Ike's birding hikes and making posts, then I started getting other offers from other outdoor clothing brand companies mm-hmm. and uh, apparel. Um, like I work with REI mm-hmm. and Outdoor Afro and REI Co-op, uh, Knox Binoculars, which is a binocular company out from California, which they have very just stylish binoculars. I can also, you can match with the outfits, you know. <laughs> and so, so really just, um, I really mainly look like with these pay partnerships and uh, brands that reach out to me. It's just look to see if their values or if their brand realigns with mine, with like spreading hikes, like just having clothing that yeah, just involves joy and a love for nature. Yeah, I, I also, I love the phrase birding drip. I feel like that alone yeah. will get a few more <laughs> yeah. people into birding. Um, but to talk about, I guess, trying to open up the world of birding to others in a way. I, I understand that you are also the chair of diversity, equity, and inclusion in Cornell's Birding Club. What does that position entail? Or like, what kind of work are you trying to do um, from that position? So uh, last year, I, I was the um, chair of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. That role has been passed on to another student now. Mm-hmm. But during that time, uh, my role was particularly I just kind of recognize the issue of just lack of diversity and the Burden Club really just catered to just a set amount of people, just mainly mm. people who are um, ENS majors or already have like an interest in bird watching, similar to I do. Yeah. But I just had to go and visiting just just reaching out to other clubs and organizations and uh, just getting more of groups of people involved in the club. So I mainly um, did that through with bird watching hikes. Yeah. And I, I led hikes uh, where just anyone can come, just local hikes on campus. And it was just a really huge success. And just not even just students, but it was like grad students and people that lived around in a local area. And oh, cool. professors, and they would bring their children and just like really just show how just really expanding the birding community Mm -hmm. and so it was really fun uh fun time uh doing that (laughs) we'll be back with more from karen's conversation with isaiah scott after this
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Listeners, I hope you've been enjoying working overtime, which is a bi-weekly bonus version of working focused on listener questions. You can catch it every other Thursday. We love to give advice and we want to answer your questions or respond to your concerns and generally share ideas on that show. Is there a creative problem you're struggling with or a creative practice that's working really well for you right now? Well, drop us a line at working at slate.com or call us and leave a voicemail at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to Karen's conversation with Isaiah Scott. So we've talked about a little bit of the work that you do like with other people, but I also want to talk about your personal research. So you began a project to document the Gullah Geechee people's relationship to the coastal landscape. Um, I wanted to ask you how you first came to know about the region and what captivated you about it and what made you want to research further. Yeah, so um, Gullah Geechee people are descendants of enslaved um, African people along the southeast coast, and this included the coast of North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and northern Florida. And kind of during and after the time of slavery, there were settlements, and still are to this day, settlements and communities of Gullah Geechee people that are uh, found in different sea islands and uh, along rivers and in coastal um, areas. And so they've, uh, Gullah Geechee people have been able to retain and still practice to this day many uh, West African traditions Mm -hmm. and belief systems and ways of life that have survived through the transatlantic slave trade. And so... Gullah Geechee is uh, my heritage. I've been, a couple years ago, I started to learn about um, it's my Gullah Geechee roots and mm-hmm. the history. And so I learned about this great opportunity that was passed along to me called, known as the, the Echoberry Fellowship. Mm-hmm. And so this is a, a fellowship that's offered by Drexel University. And it, they endow nature artists and wildlife illustrators and uh, people who do like environmental art and support different projects, such as like if someone wants to write like a field guide or a book or a publication. And so I was encouraged to apply. And so 
Um, I had this idea with um, kind of with uh, my interest with uh, bird illustration and artwork yeah. to illustrate a guide of birds that are connected to Galagichi people and uh, just birds. And through some of my research of, um, about my Galagichi heritage, I've uh, found a lot of bird characters and symbolism in Galagichi animal folklore. Oh, wow. And so um, a lot of birds were used to convey messages of life and death and freedom and also a lot of feelings that were expressed during the horrendous time of enslavement. Mm -hmm. And so I received the... Um, the fellowship. I'm the Eckerberry Fellow of 2021, mm -hmm. and so I am uh, now in the process of illustrating um, this guide in this book. And it's this basically the whole message is how birds are a natural symbol of freedom and liberation for the Galagichi people and African Americans. And so, really, really excited to be working on this project. Yeah, and I also love that particular framing because I think when, when someone hears the word field guide, the impulse is to think it's just a bunch of kind of disparate entries. They're just like, this is this, this is that. But like having an overarching structure kind of really does differentiate it. And I also wanted to ask about the process of writing and illustrating a field guide as well. How research intensive is it? Like what is the process of researching and creating a field guide? So my process, um, my research process mm -hmm. for the field guide so far is I've just been mainly looking in a lot of text about Gullah Geechee animal folklore and about stories. And sometimes I would also have to um, either try to identify birds. Like I know mm -hmm. in a folklore that I read, it was about, um, there was a bird mentioned called a gala nipper. Mm -hmm. And of course, at first I'm thinking, Gallinimper, what is, you know, yeah. I, I don't think there's a, a bird that we call today called Gallinimper. And so I kept reading it. And it basically, just from reading, it was saying how it knocks on wood or like pecks on wood. And I first thought, oh, this sounds like a woodpecker. Mm -hmm. And um, basically the whole story is that someone was, I think, was trying to hunt the woodpecker but the bird was able to outsmart the man who, who, mm -hmm. had a, who had an axe. So while they were like kind of fighting in this dispute, that the woodpecker pecked the tree so hard that it got stuck into the tree. <laughs> and so when the guy, the man, when he tried to strike out the woodpecker, the woodpecker was so strong that it, when it pulled its head back, it pulled up the whole tree out of like <laughs> the whole root out of the ground and so I was thinking wow like this is just a very I don't know just I can just see the visuals of this happening just how this makes me think of like an old cartoon just very dramatic yeah. and just and so I was thinking now what what is a, a large woodpecker that you know able to have kind of such strength and I was thinking about a um this kind of sounds similar and they also mentioned how the tree was a uh, a gum tree, and so uh, a species that of woodpecker that was large, and they were usually found in stands of gum trees, mm -hmm. was the um, ivory-billed woodpecker. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so um, the ivory-billed woodpecker is a large species of woodpecker that's found through the southeast, but they're uh, now declared extinct. And oh. so, yeah, so I was thinking, but during the time, I, I believe the, the story, the narrative was recorded in the 18, I think like late 1800s, and that was when the bird was still around. Yeah. And so... So, so just really just kind of researching and looking at these different context clues and, like, reading these animal folklores and stories, really that's kind of my process of just going through mm-hmm. and kind of making, kind of identifying, making a list of birds. And then from there I just start illustrating uh, the birds that, I, that I've been able to find. And so the illustration process is... Um, it's definitely been, uh, I guess, the main part because it's it's mainly mm-hmm. going to be an illustrated book. Yeah. But I've been, I've just been able to sharpen my um, skills of like illustrations and bird artwork while here attending Cornell because they have. Um, I took these two uh, really amazing uh, bird illustration courses while mm. here, and so that has just dramatically just changed my artwork and improved it. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about your illustrations as well, because your bird illustrations are so beautiful. Um, I'm almost surprised to hear you say that like these bird uh, illustrating courses helped you a lot, because I'm like, oh, but he's already so good. Like, what what is there to improve? (laughs) Um, But I'm curious if there was like a specific thing that you learned uh, during those courses that really changed um, how you approach illustrating. Yeah, so um, the first illustration class that I took last year, it was um, the art and science of birds. Mm-hmm. So in that class, I mainly, we just kind of learned like the basics, like everything from how to just accurately and like scientifically draw birds, um, like getting proportions right and like the bill size mm-hmm. and beaks. And we looked at uh, practice drawing and illustrating different birds from different techniques. And so that really kind of helped me just going through the whole process of just drawing my birds more accurately and making sure, like, my proportion of the birds, of, like, the the body and the legs and the beak. And kind of before, I was just kind of, um, like, I would use, I would look at a reference of a bird or, like, a picture, mm-hmm. and um, I never, like, checked my proportion. I just kind of, like, mm-hmm. just looked and just kind of say, okay, the bill's about, like, yeah. You know, a little this gotcha, this yeah. size, okay, that's good. And then, you know, and I guess it worked out fine. But through that course, I really just learned how to go through the process of mm-hmm. analyzing uh, your reference and checking proportions. Got more uh, skilled at, like, the painting process. We also looked at painting and just the use of colors. And we kind of learned a little bit, like, color theory and uh, mm-hmm. which is something I was just like oh my gosh that sounds sounds complicated I just get the paint you know mix, <laughs> yeah. mix up with the water and just put it on the page you know yeah. and, but this is this is a really good thing especially um, help me with uh, kind of a technique that I do now which is like layering and mm-hmm. kind of just starting off like the basic colors and then as you go on you start mm-hmm. um, layering and just uh, really creates this nice uh, just structured and bold and colorful painting and then uh like texture and and so that so it was it was really um my favorite 
courses that I've, I've taken, I would say, because it's, it's two of my favorite things, verbs yeah. and, and art. So that it really just sharpened my skills. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Okay, so you, you've cited the painted bunting as your favorite bird before. What I'm impressed by is that every interview that I read where they ask you that, it's all, you always mention the painted bunting. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Very, very solidarity with it. Yes, my favorite <laughs> bird. <laughs> so, um, yes, the painted bunting, uh, when I first started bird watching, I had um, got my first field guide. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was just flipping through, like, learning, oh, what, what birds can I see in yeah. my area? And um, I noticed the painted bunting, this is very brilliant, colorful bird. Um, the male, it has a, um, has like a blue head and then like a red throat and belly. And then it has like green and yellow wings. Mm. But the females are actually all green. But um, so why that is, so the males, they have all these uh, vibrant colors because usually that's... Um, to attract females, but mm-hmm. also to kind of that displays the health mm. of the male and also how, um, I guess, kind of how it owns this territory. Like, you know, mm-hmm. oh, I'm, 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 you know, I'm big and colorful. Yeah. Well, not big. They're kind of small, <laughs> but um, <laughs> they, they act like they're big and like they yeah. sing. Uh, and the song is very melodious. Uh, that's mm. also my favorite bird song. Mm-hmm. They sing to um, to establish territories and to call off other rival birds or just uh, yeah. And so, but the females. So during the nesting season, when the females care and like lay over the eggs, that's as um, camouflage. And so that green it blends in with the foliage mm. and green. So I that's something I uh, recently learned. I was kind of like, wow, that's that's really cool. How the um, that cooperation in the the painted buntings and how the colors kind of correspond to their behaviors and uh mm-hmm. it's this yes i love that bird so much <laughs> <laughs> i'm curious what are your other favorite bird calls another one of my favorite is this bird called the montezuma or pendula and I've been able to um, recently uh, have a trip to Costa Rica in January. And so um, on one of our trips, we went to a cloud forest near this place called Arno Lake. Mm-hmm. And so one of my first birds that I encountered there was this bird called the um, Montezuma or Pendula. And it's very mm-hmm. beautiful and large um, blackbird species. They have like this very just ornate color pattern like a yellow tail and like Mm -hmm. this like large triangular shaped bill but um they do like this kind of call display where they kind of like rock back and forth Mm. on this branch and like when they go down they let out this just very just kind of I don't even know how to explain it's just very Mm -hmm. like a like a robotic kind of metallic noise and it's very high pitch <laughs> it is bizarre it is awesome <laughs> <laughs> all right so for a final question about bird watching do you have any quick tips or tricks for people who might want to get out there and give it a try my advice for people who just have trouble like going out and have a hard time seeing birds 
well, one thing with like looking through your binoculars, and uh, that's something that I kind of struggled with when I started birding, like how mm-hmm. to try to find birds like in the binoculars. Yeah. Like when whenever you spot a bird, this can be like up in a tree or on a bush. Just always of uh, like keep your eyes on it, and then usually with your binoculars, like you just kind of gently just place the binoculars over your eyes. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of helps because sometimes when it's like, oh, I see a bird, and you kind of rush, and then, like, right. you're looking at just nothing. It's like a, the other <laughs> side of the place. It's like, oh, wait, I was trying to find it. But um, what I really found very helpful is just kind of just, like, keeping your eyes on the bird. Uh-huh. Um, unless it flies away, that's, that sometimes yeah. happens, and that can um, be a hassle to uh, deal with. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, just by just gently placing binoculars over your eyes, you'll be able to find the bird better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you just, like, adjust the um, the focus with the little knob. And there you've you've been able to successfully uh, find and uh, mm-hmm. view a bird through your binoculars. So, Gotcha. So eyes first, binoculars second. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been so delightful. And I hope it does encourage uh, more people to go out and look for birds themselves. Thank you for having me on the podcast. And I really enjoyed speaking with you. Up next, Karen and I will talk about challenging preconceptions and the importance of recognizing the complication levels of our creative endeavors. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Karen, I love that conversation. 
Isaiah's enthusiasm for being in nature and his love of birds really comes through. And I have terrible eyesight, which makes bird watching <laughs> really kind of pointless for me. But he made me want to go out and see what I could see and maybe learn to identify bird calls. I have to here give a pitch for a BBC Radio 4 show that airs every morning Ooh. in the US. It airs at 5.58 a.m. It's just before the start <laughs> of the Today Show. And they, it's called Tweet of the Day, and they just oh. play uh, a bird call. And, oh, that's uh, so nice. Yeah, so I sometimes hear it, and I think, wow, one day I might mm -hmm. recognize one of these after the fact. <laughs> one thing that really struck me about Isaiah was his determination to say, you know what, this pursuit has been associated with a particular demographic, but mm -hmm. there's no reason that that should be. You don't have to avoid bird drip, which is my new favorite phrase. <laughs> you don't have to be as quiet as a mouse when you're out looking at birds or at nature. You can be you in all your glory there as everywhere else. And mm -hmm. that's really inspiring. And I'm wondering if listeners are thinking, you know, I think a lot more people could enjoy my hobby or my art form or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So what kinds of strategies might they employ to expand that hobby in the way that Isaiah is doing? I think a lot of it comes down to thinking about what kind of rules you've either set for yourself or think have been set for you in whatever mm. field you're trying to broaden, I guess. And then yeah. taking the time to assess whether or not they're actually helping you or hindering you. How low can you make the barrier for entry? Is there a mm. cost or investment associated with that? How yeah. can you circumnavigate that? Because ultimately, it's about figuring out how easy you can make it for someone who's never done it before. For instance, if you keep saying that you need to buy 10 pieces of equipment to do X activity, that's an instant higher barrier for yeah. entry. But yeah. if you say you can achieve it just as easily without anything in your hands, then more people will be willing and able to participate. Yeah, that's so true. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, again, so many reasons why I've never been a birder. Mm -hmm. But one of them <laughs> is you often need a car because like, yeah, these people I know, they seem to go at like 6am and they go off to, you know, some park somewhere. And I, in fact, know someone who learned in her 50s just so she could go see birds wow. and to drive. But I really liked how he said, you know, you can do it in the city. There are some birds. You have to, yeah. you know, set your expectations appropriately. But I love that. Another thing that stuck out for me was how many tasks Isaiah is juggling when he's leading hikes. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of information and skills building involved in figuring out the route and communicating facts about the flora and the fauna and then the how-tos of birding. But there are also interpersonal skills that are really important, making sure everyone mm -hmm. feels welcome and engaged. And for something I was writing, I recently spent some time with a tour guide here in Edinburgh. And that job, I realized, is also very complicated because mm -hmm. of the need to keep track of so many elements. And it made me think of how interesting and actually slightly overwhelming it can be to like... <laughs> list out all the steps that are involved in a process or a project that you do, something that you might even do multiple times a week or maybe even daily. It can be really eye-opening. You can kind of feel good about yourself, how much mm -hmm. you're doing, or sometimes, you know, it can lead you to make decisions about maybe cutting scope or needing to develop more skills. Um, is this something you've ever done, just kind of really putting down on paper, like what's involved in a particular process? 
I don't think I've ever sat down and made a list, but <laughs> it's definitely something that I keep track of mentally. And I think a lot of us like kind of have to just as more plates start spinning in the air. Yeah. Um, like you say, doing something like leading a birding hike has a lot of moving pieces. It's not enough for you just to be knowledgeable about birds. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about this in relation to the conversation that I had with game maker Jian Shim in another working episode, yeah. where she mentioned that she got her start leading these group activities for kids and how much that sort of helped her figure out how to work in a medium that while it is crucial for you to be a good storyteller also demands that you be good with working with people and I think that knowing what your skill set is or at least your level of comfort is Mm. really important in figuring out how you want to move forward in your field like you can work on your people skills and get better at working with people but if it's just not something that you're interested or find like puts a lot of anxiety on you to do, it's probably better to divert your energy somewhere else and find a different way forward. Yeah. And it's really hard to figure that out without actually doing it. You know, you think you want to do something and then you do it. You're like, oh, okay, no. (laughs) I really enjoyed hearing about the project he's pursuing as an Eccleberry Fellow. Mm -hmm. Seems like a really beautiful way of connecting different strands of interest and identity. And it was Interesting to hear how he's trying to figure out the boundaries of his project in order to keep it doable. That's really important. And it's very hard. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you got to find that Goldilocks point in any project where it's not too small, but it's not so big you can't do it. You got to find like that just right point. What have you learned about how to find that sweet spot? I think the big thing is you have to trust your gut. It's your Mm. project, so you're in the best position to know what is or isn't working and what you personally are or aren't capable of accomplishing in whatever set time period there is. I think the actual process of figuring out, though, will always look different. Sometimes you'll figure it out in the outline. Sometimes you figure it out while you're researching. And sometimes you only see what the big picture is when you finished a first draft and can take stock of it. And I I guess I want to turn the question around on you a little bit. Like, as someone who is in the final stages of working on your book, like, how did you figure this out as you were writing and researching? You know, I have to say, my ears just kind of perked up when you just said that because I literally just sent off the first draft just a few minutes before we're taping. And it was only literally seeing it all kind of laid out. You know, I compiled all the the chapters and it kind of, I already can see like, huh, yeah, you know, I've like, I've noted some things. Mm. And, you know, it wasn't that it was a complete surprise to me, but there is something very revealing You know, just as you see different things on paper as on a screen, as crazy as that is in some ways, Mm -hmm. I think just seeing a completed first draft kind of allows you to see, you know what, I think that could stand some beefing up there. And and that kind Mm -hmm. of thought or it's so out of balance. Whatever those things are, I won't (laughs) repeat them just in case my editor's listening. I don't want to give her any material. (laughs) But, But yeah, I just that's where I saw what needs to be worked on still. Yeah. To get back to Isaiah, I loved hearing about his favorite bird. It was really clear how hyped he was when he was talking about the painted bunting. Uh, Karen, do you have a favorite bird? I love a lot of birds. Like I get really excited when I see hummingbirds. I get excited when I see owls or corvids or like Mm. big birds of prey. But if I had to pick just one, maybe it'd be kingfishers, which is also like a very broad answer because it's a family of type of bird. It's not a one bird. But they're all just so cute and squat and often very appealingly (laughs) colorful. So I like seeing them. What about you? Well, I do have literally a favorite bird, (gasps) an actual bird. There's a gray heron 
who sits Ooh. in the water of Leith where we walk most days. He doesn't oh sit gosh. there most days, but we yeah. walk there most days and he's often there. Yeah. And when he is there, we always kind of spend some time communing with him because <laughs> he's so big and yeah. he, he also is always on his own you know like Aww. there's often other birds around him you know maybe some ducks and, and that but yeah. there's no other herons and you know we've given him a name we've given him a gender what, and, is, what is his name uh, his name is harry amazing you know, incredibly inventive <laughs> but you know we actually talk about oh, i wonder how harry's doing you know and, and yeah and i have to say he's also an instagram star oh. not as harry but i noticed um because there are quite a few tourists where yeah. he hangs out. He does show up on Instagram. So that's cute fair. gray heron in, in Edinburgh. Oh, um, I love that. That's Harry. <laughs> you should start an account for him. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably about six already. But yeah, maybe I will. Now that I've finished my first draft and I've got all kinds of time. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have this week. Unless, of course, you're a Slate Plus subscriber, in which case you will soon hear a little something extra from this week's interview. And that's not the only benefit of Slate Plus membership listeners. You'll also hear extra segments on shows like this one, Culture Gab Fest and The Waves, entire bonus episodes of shows like Big Mood, Little Mood and Slow Burn. And you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. Thank you so much to our guest, Isaiah Scott. And thanks to our wonderful producer, Cameron Drews, whose call is incredibly melodious. We'll be back next week with Isaac Butler's interview with writer John Cotter. Until then, get back to work. <laughs>